At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Donald Trump pleads not guilty as Mark Meadows takes the stand. Testimony from Trump's chief of staff provides a window into his shaky defense in Georgia and a warning about what a second Trump term would look like. I'll ask Congressman Adam Schiff about that and the argument that Trump could be removed from the ballot under the 14th Amendment. Plus, Rudy Giuliani has been found legally liable for defaming two Georgia election workers. The attorney for Shane Moss and Ruby Freeman joins me live. And later, most Republicans continue to blame the plague of gun violence on everything but guns. Senator Chris Murphy is here with reaction to what they're saying and what the Biden administration is actually doing. On its face, a hearing this week with Donald Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, revolved around what might sound like a sideshow legal issue compared to the larger problems facing the former president. He wants to move his case from state to federal court. But what we learned from his nearly four hours of questioning has implications far beyond a potential change of venue for his trial. In addition to giving us the first sense of what the argument may be from a number of Trump's other co-conspirators, of which there are many, the testimony was also another flashing warning sign of what a second Trump term could look like. I mean, let's hear one on the key defense we heard from Mark Meadows. He argued that the allegations outlined in the indictment, you know, the unrelenting pursuit of baseless claims of election fraud, the pressure campaign on Georgia officials to find votes, the conspiratorial behavior to keep Trump in power. He says all of that was, quote, part of my role, as in his role. And he doesn't think anything he did, including overtly political campaign activities, was outside of his scope as chief of staff. Now, that may all sound pretty outlandish to you, understandable if it does, even a little bit laughable. But it also tells you a heck of a lot about what was going on in the White, inside the White House at that time. In fact, Meadows himself acknowledged that he helped coordinate the fake elector scheme for Trump's campaign because Trump might yell at him if he didn't. That's literally what he said. Here's the thing. The job of a White House chief of staff is to have tough conversations. I've worked for six of them. I can promise you that. It's their job to tell the hard truths to the president. And sometimes that means you get yelled at. Meadows was supposed to be a chief of staff who was a hardcore conservative, but also a protector of, you know, the Constitution. If Meadows could show this kind of blind allegiance, that's a pretty big warning sign that a second Trump term could be far worse. Author Chris Whipple is the authority on the White House Chiefs of Staff, and he wrote this in the New York Times, quote, For Mr. Meadows, his place in history is secure as a primary enabler of a president who tried to overthrow democracy. But his example should serve as a warning of what will happen if Mr. Trump regains the White House. All guardrails will be gone. That, by the way, is something I've heard from many, many people uh, who have worked in administrations about their concern. So should Trump be elected in 2024, there should be little doubt that he'll surround himself with perhaps even more damaging versions of yes men and women than we have seen to date. 
people similar to, say, former Trump DOJ official Jeffrey Clark, who, if you don't remember this, tried to blackmail other members of the Justice Department to do the former president's bidding. That guy would probably be on the short list for attorney general. People similar to, or worse than, Rudy Giuliani. Yes, that guy, who just this week was found liable of defaming two election workers so relentlessly that he put their lives in danger. These are the type of people he all but certainly would install in his second term. People at the top levels of government who will tell him exactly what he wants to hear, not the hard truths, who he can basically control. People who will agree to attack and even to prosecute any of his adversaries. People who will say, yes, sir, law be damned. So my biggest takeaway this week was not just about the legality of the actions taken in Trump's first term. There's a lot to dive into there, too. But also about the damage that could be done if he gets a second crack at staffing the government with blind loyalists and sycophants. Joining me now is Congressman Adam Schiff. He was an impeachment manager during Donald Trump's first impeachment trial and was a member of the House Select Committee on January 6th. Congressman Schiff, thank you so much for joining me on Labor Day weekend. Great to be with you. You followed this all so closely, given all of your various roles on the, uh, in Congress. Were you all surprised as you were watching Mark Meadows' testimony of anything he had to say on Monday? Not surprised so much by what he had to say as the fact that he said it at all, that he felt the need to take that gamble, that big gamble, by taking Mm -hmm. the stand. Uh, I think it's an indication both of the fact that uh, he feels he needs some kind of a Hail Mary to escape uh, a potential conviction, but also that if he were successful in removing the case to federal court, he has the potential to knock it out completely by arguing immunity. But, uh, you know, listening to that testimony, Uh, reading what he had to say. I think it's a very weak case, uh, both for removal, but also for immunity. If actions of a chief of staff to try to subvert an election, to try to overturn an election, to try to defraud uh, and violate uh, the laws of a particular state are somehow within the job description of a federal uh, chief of staff, Uh, then the Constitution becomes, in Justice Jackson's words, a suicide pact. Uh, And as he wrote in that dissent, that famous dissent, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. It shouldn't be interpreted in such a way as it would negate itself. Uh, But I think he feels it necessary to take such a profound risk with his testimony. Well, given, as you just said, a profound risk that he took by testifying for more than four hours, that now can all be used by other prosecutors. Did you hear anything that might be useful for Jack Smith and his team as they're working to put together their case in the their their case in prosecuting the federal election interference case? You know, mostly the absurdity of the argument that uh, he he did this as part of his role uh, in order to uh, determine what further reforms might be necessary to election laws or to see that the election law was faithfully carried out. Uh, that, I think, will be very successfully mocked uh, during the course of the trial. Uh, and it should be. It's absurd. Uh, but I think he was, you know, by and large, pretty careful about what he was saying, uh, using, you know, repetitive words and phrases, no doubt, uh, counseled by his attorney. But uh, just the absurdity of the argument, I think, will ultimately be used against him. Yes, it's such a good point. It's worth telling everybody, reminding everybody, it is not your role as the White House chief of staff to work to overturn an election, uh, to state the obvious. One, one of the things, Congressman, that stuck out, stood out to me was when Meadows was asked directly by state prosecutors if he had any role in coordinating the fake electors. He said, no, I did not. 
The prosecution then submitted into evidence an email that Meadows sent to Trump campaign advisor Jason Miller, where he wrote, quote, we just need to have someone coordinating uh, the electors for states. I mean, you've been in a range of positions in these courtrooms. Did he perjure himself there or how problematic is that for him? I think it's very problematic, and it could be even more problematic if there's other evidence that prosecutors produce of his role in the fake elector plot. This is this is why most attorneys would have counseled against him testifying, uh, other than as a last resort, because he isn't completely familiar with the discovery, and maybe he remembers these emails, uh, and maybe he is just flat out lying, and he is exposing himself in that way as well. But it also may be that he hasn't familiarized himself with all of the volumes of material yet. Uh, so this is the risk. This is the peril of trying to get out uh, in front like this uh, to remove the case. Uh, and I, I think prosecutors are only showing a fraction of what they have mm. on various issues uh, so that they can prepare a trial to use this testimony against him. There's an argument circulating about whether the 14th Amendment that prohibits anyone, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding public office bars Trump from running for president. Now, this hasn't been tested in our system before. Uh, Do you think what is your thought on whether that's a valid argument? I think it is a valid argument. Uh, You know, the 14th Amendment, uh, Section 3, is pretty clear. If you engage in acts of insurrection or rebellion against the government— or you give aid and comfort to those who do, you are disqualified from running. It doesn't require that you be convicted of insurrection. Uh, It just requires that uh, you have engaged in these acts. It's a disqualification from holding office again. Uh, And it fits Donald Trump to a T. I think this will be tested when a secretary of state either refuses to put him on the ballot or puts him on the ballot and is challenged by a litigant. Um, I would imagine it will go up to the Supreme Court. And that's the big question mark through all of this, which is, what will the Supreme Court do? There are prominent constitutional scholars, as well as prominent uh, progressive scholars, uh, who believe that he should be disqualified. But uh, will the court take that step? Ultimately, uh, only time will tell. But I do think uh, it is a very legitimate issue. By the clear terms of the 14th Amendment, he should be disqualified from holding office. Congress is not returning for a couple of weeks, but Republicans are already ramping up talk of an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Here's what Marjorie Taylor Greene recently said. I will not vote to fund the government unless we have passed an impeachment inquiry on Joe Biden. Now, shutting the government down has implications on the public broadly. What what is your reaction to her tying a government shutdown to an impeachment inquiry? Well, it just shows uh, the extreme lengths they'll go uh, to carry water for Donald Trump. Uh, they'll shut down the government. They'll do whatever they can uh, to initiate an impeachment of Joe Biden. And part of the motivation here is, of course, to distract from Donald Trump's multiple indictments. Part of it is to somehow try to dilute the stain of Trump's impeachments. Uh, but the common denominator is this just unswerving, uh, undeniable willingness to debase themselves in the service of Donald Trump. Uh, I think that many of them would like to shut down the government anyway. Uh, this will just give them further leverage to try to shut down the government. Having failed to uh, default on the nation's credit, uh, many see this as the next demonstration of their 
commitment to God knows what. Uh, so I, I fear that we're on a path to government shutdown because there are enough members of the Republican conference who want it. And Kevin McCarthy will do whatever it takes to remain speaker one more day or one more week. That's his sole motivation. Congressman Adam Schiff, always a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Coming up, some Republicans in Georgia are taking aim at District Attorney Fonnie Willis, but Governor Brian Kemp is having none of it. A former state senator who testified in front of the grand jury joins me next. Plus, election workers Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss notch a huge victory against Rudy Giuliani. Their attorney is going to join me here on set as well. And later, I'll ask Senator Chris Murphy about addressing gun violence and new polling that shows President Biden and Donald Trump tied. We're just getting started today. We'll be right back. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Donald Trump and his allies are digging in and lashing out as the former president's four criminal cases continue to move through the courts. They have tried discrediting the indictments, calling them, among other things, political prosecutions. They've threatened to defund the prosecutors who are trying to hold Trump accountable. And now they're casually talking about political violence and civil war. I told one senator, I said, listen, I said, we've got to put our heads together and figure this out. We need to be taking action right now, because if we don't, our constituencies are going to be fighting it in the streets. Do you want a civil war? I don't want a civil war. I don't want to have to draw my rifle. I want to make this problem go away with my legislative means of doing so. And the first step to getting that done is defunding Fonnie Willis. I don't want to have to draw my rifle. That was Georgia State Senator Colton Moore, who, by the way, Donald Trump has praised for his plan to kneecap Fannie Willis's investigation. But Republican leaders in Georgia seem to be drawing a line. And instead of interfering, many of them are promising to abide by the basic tenets of the law. At a news conference this week, Governor Ryan Kemp flatly rejected calls for a special session or any action against Willis for her indictment against Trump. I have not seen any evidence that D.A. Willis's actions or lack thereof warrant action by the Prosecuting Attorney Oversight Commission, a special session of the General Assembly to end run around this law is not feasible and may ultimately prove to be unconstitutional. As long as I'm governor, we're going to follow the law and the Constitution, regardless of who it helps or harms politically. In this day and age, it is kind of newsworthy when Republicans don't blindly do Donald Trump's bidding, believe it or not, in 2023. He has always benefited from a tremendous amount of political cover from members of his own party. But it does not look like that's going to be universally the case this time in Georgia. 
Joining me now is former Georgia State Senator Jen Jordan, who actually testified before the grand jury in Fulton County. So great to see you today. Thank you so much for being here with me. So I just wanted to start, first of all, with Kemp's rejection of the special session. What what do you make of that and what should we all take away from it? Look, I think... A, he knows that he really shouldn't do that because whatever acts that would happen would be illegal, right? It's definitely, um, you know, there's something called separation of powers in the Constitution, and you can't just do anything you want, no matter what Republicans in Georgia or some Republicans in Georgia think. Um, and then separately, look, what Willis is doing is she's prosecuting a case. If Trump is not guilty or is going to be exonerated, then let the process play out. But just bringing charges in and of itself is not grounds, um, you know, for going after her or defunding her office. So this this past May, the governor did sign a law that set up a new commission that has the power to investigate complaints and remove district attorneys. That commission will not be set up until October. It's currently being challenged in the court. But you know Georgia politics well. I mean, do you think there are a bunch of Republicans who are going to try to take advantage of this? Or what should we be anticipating here? Absolutely. I mean, because anybody can make a complaint. It's not even like you have to be someone who lives in Fulton County and has a problem with the district attorney there. Um, They are going to use this as a political vehicle to go after prosecutors that they don't like or they don't like what their charging decisions are. And look, one of the biggest things was that there were a lot of um, Democrats that were um, you know, people of color that got elected in 2020. And so the law originally really was kind of a, a pushback on all of those folks winning office. And then now it's just rolled into the Trump stuff where now they're using this law specifically to go after Willis because they don't like that she's prosecuting Trump. I mean, you mentioned the separation of power, which I, I'm so glad you did, because it's important to remind people that that is part of the tradition of our country. Is there any repercussions for people going after Willis for for politicizing these cases, for trying to prosecute her? I think so. I mean, what's interesting is what I always try to tell people, and specifically even in the political context, is be careful what you wish for, right, or what you push, because the door goes both ways. So now we've got this this prosecution oversight committee that goes after prosecutors that don't make appropriate charging decisions. Well, you know what? Folks that don't like what Republican prosecutors are doing can use the same thing if we think about Ahmaud Arbery, right, and that prosecutor in South Georgia. Um, So it's going to be used as a vehicle, but really for for folks politically. Now, are there going to be repercussions from that? There should be, um, but you never know in Georgia. I mean, that's the problem. We, We seem to have a very short political memory in terms of what people are actually doing in their policies and then whether or not we'll vote for them in the future. So lots of watch there. Uh, so you, there, there are a number of co-defendants in the right. case that have demanded a speedy trial. Uh, hence, some of them are going to have their trial start in October. What do you make of that strategy? I know you kind of question whether that's a good strategy for them or not. Why would it not be a good strategy for Look, them? Look, one of the biggest things is you don't know what the prosecutor has. So a lot of times as uh, an attorney, you would do it because you're trying to call the prosecutor's hand, right? Their office isn't going to be ready. And under Georgia law, if you demand a speedy trial, you have to get it. And if you don't get it by a certain time, then you are effectively acquitted as a matter of law. So it's one of those things where when you 
you make that demand, you're going to go to trial effectively within two to three months. And you don't know what the, the prosecutor has. And here, with respect to, to D.A. Willis and her office, they have been working this case up for two years. Mm -hmm. They are ready to go. She wasn't going to actually launch until she was ready in terms of the indictment. And so I, that's why I question it in terms of a strategy, because the only people that could possibly be caught flat-footed um, are the defendants and the accused here. Because she's already done all her homework. She's now they have to kind of cram for the she's test. She's done all the witnesses. I mean, there was a special grand jury proceeding where they had, I think it was like 76 witnesses. Can you imagine the discovery and what they know? And to be quite frank, all of these various different defendants, they have no clue what she knows, who's cooperating with her, and what she has in her back pocket. So we're expecting a ruling as early as this week on Mark Meadows' um, request to move his trial, move the venue of his trial. Uh, what do you make of his argument? And what is your expectation, knowing Georgia law, on whether he could be successful here or not? Well, it's kind of interesting because as a general matter, federal law in terms of removal is kind of a low bar, right? You just have to show you're a federal, federal official. It's very, it's usually pretty easy to get over but not with the facts of this case. I mean, Meadows did as much as he could to basically minimize his position in front of the judge. I mean, I almost was like, were you an admin? Like, were you getting coffee and tea for folks and just doing the calendar, which we know a chief of staff, that's not really what, mm -hmm. you know, what they do. Um, and I think he lost a lot of credibility with that because he was out there. I mean, he came to Georgia. He tried to kind of push his way into a room where they were auditing votes. And his fingerprints are all over everything. And, of course, the moment um, when he effectively um, lied on the stand and said, well, he didn't have anything to do with the fake elector thing. And then, of course, the district attorney pulls out an email. That's the problem with the speedy trial. That's the problem of... Um, testifying so early on when you have no clue what exactly the That's prosecutor has. That's a perfect has. example. All the things they could pull out. Jen Jordan, it was such a pleasure. Thank you Thank for joining you. me today. Coming up, Rudy Giuliani may have to finally pay for his lies. I'll talk to the attorney representing the election workers he defamed. And later, my one-on-one -on -one conversation with Senator Chris Murphy. We're back after a quick break. There's this saying that democracy is a verb. It means democracy isn't just a concept. It involves the actual act of showing up to the polls and casting a ballot. And in every election, ordinary citizens serve as election workers to ensure the act of democracy goes smoothly. They help voters register, operate voting machines, and count ballots. The work that these people do should be applauded. But right now, they're under attack. The Justice Department announced this week that they have charged more than a dozen people for threatening election workers since 2020. In one indictment, an Iowa man threatened to, quote, lynch and hang an Arizona election official. In another indictment, a man left a voicemail for a Michigan election worker saying, quote, a million plus patriots will surround you when you least expect it. That's pretty alarming. According to new data from the Brennan Center for Justice, about one in three election officials have been harassed, abused, or threatened simply for doing their jobs. One in three. And of course, some of them have been subjected to baseless attacks from the former president of the United States and his allies. But as we continue to learn, lies like these do have consequences. This week, a federal judge ruled that Rudy Giuliani is liable for defamation and intentional infliction of emotional distress on two election workers in Georgia, Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss. You might remember that, the that they are the mother and daughter who testified before the January 6th committee about what Rudy Giuliani did to their lives. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. 
I've lost my sense of security. All because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me. Rudy Giuliani can never undo the pain he caused Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, but now he does have to pay for it. Joining me now is the attorney for Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, Mike Gottlieb. So congratulations on your victory this week. I just wanted to start. Now we have a, a trial to determine how much Giuliani must pay his clients. So what can we all expect during that trial? What should we be watching for? Well, I think um, the, this phase is going to be a damages quantification phase, which doesn't sound too exciting to most ordinary people. But what it really means is it's a chance for our clients to tell their story of the harm that has been caused to their lives and how it has upended everything they had and everything they knew about. And it will give us an opportunity to demonstrate what that means financially and what that means we think um, Mr. Giuliani should be required to pay to our clients for the harm that he's now been found to have caused. Now, you've said tens of millions, potentially, if you do your jobs. Um, do you think that will prompt others who have been defamed by Rudy Giuliani or other Trump allies to come out and file lawsuits? I mean, one of the purposes of punitive damages awards is to send a deterrence message and is to, to send the message that and it's actually one of the purposes of sanctions as well. So if you think about, you know, why is why has the court entered an order of default judgment defining liability? It's in part to send a message to people that you're required to cooperate with court orders, you're required to produce documents when you receive lawfully served subpoenas. So there are consequences to this kinds of kind of action, and we do hope that it'll send a message to um, not just people who might want to engage in defamation, but it'll send a message to election workers mm -hmm. and people who want to be involved in the system that there are people out here who will have your back, and there are people who will stand up for you if these kinds of, of lies and, and this kind of harassment occurs to you in the future. Now, one of the people who did not provide documents um, is Rudy Giuliani. I mean, even as he is claiming recently that he has scientific evidence to prove election fraud took place. He has been saying that for years, has never produced it. He has not produced it in this case, which presumably would have helped him if he actually had it. Explain to non-lawyers what's going on here. It's very puzzling, Jen. Um, and it happens often with, with people who are proponents of conspiracy theories. There's always some pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that will be discovered that demonstrates, uh, you know, that the, the, all of the details of the conspiracy. But the thing about litigation and the thing about civil litigation is there, there comes a time to put up or shut up. And that time came. And Rudy Giuliani had an opportunity not just to turn over, you know, the documents that we wanted from him, but any documents at all that demonstrated any of the claims of fraud that he had in this case. And I think what you see from the opinion that the court issued is he basically turned over nothing. We didn't get any affidavits from these you know, magical witnesses who could prove that fraud existed. We didn't get any reports of scientific evidence showing fraud. We got nothing. So I think it, it is a, it's, it's, it's puzzling uh, that, that after all these promises of fraud and all this time, there's just no evidence to back any of it. And the reason is, is actually pretty simple. If you just watch the video that Rudy Giuliani claims demonstrates fraud, has been explained by the Republican election officials in Georgia. It doesn't show anything other than ordinary processing of the counting of ballots performed by, you know, honorable, decent servants who volunteered for that duty. So, so many people, I think, watching are really rooting for Ruby and Shay in this case, given everything they've been through. But then there's this question of if you sued successfully, you're the victim of your own success here, Giuliani, why not sue Trump too? 
Uh, yeah, we, we do get that question quite a bit. Um, I can't really speak for, um, you know, I can't really speak to that in, in a, a televised interview. Oh. Um, all I can say is, uh, you know, if people continue to defame our clients, um, I don't care who they are, uh, but if people continue to go out on TV and repeat these lies that we have demonstrated to be false, they, you know, they can expect to hear from us. Sounds like if Donald Trump is out there defaming Ruby and Shay, he should stay tuned. Um, how are Ruby and Shay doing? Um, it doesn't change their lives. How, how did they react to uh, the um, recent ruling over the past couple of weeks? Yeah, they're, I mean, they were thrilled with the ruling. It's vindication for what they have been saying, uh, you know, for a couple of years now. Uh, it is vindication for their decision to, to not take this lying down, to actually stand up and do something about it, but both for them and what's happened to their lives, but for the other election workers who are out there and the other uh, civil servants who have, who have been uh, harassed and denigrated. And um, so they're, they're, they're very happy with this step in the process. They recognize we're not done yet and that there is more work to be done. Uh, but I think that they're, they see this as an important step in the, in the right direction. Mike Gottlieb, thank you so much for joining me today. Congratulations to Ruby and Shay as well. Coming up, more gun violence, same old talking points from Republican politicians. I've got a few thoughts about one of their favorite go-to arguments. And later, I'll ask Senator Chris Murphy if he believes now is the time Congress really could close the so-called gun show loophole, as the Biden administration is proposing. We're back after a quick break. If you listen to some public officials answer questions after a mass shooting in this country, they'll tell you it's because of a mental health crisis and only a mental health crisis, all of these mass shootings. We've heard it time and time and time again. Guns, no guns, it doesn't matter. You have people that are mentally ill. I don't want to take guns away from law-abiding citizens. I want to focus on the people that have mental illness. Anybody who shoots somebody else has a mental health challenge. Period. We've talked about the need to improve mental health uh, in this country, and that's been a driver of a lot of these shootings. We have people, though, with mental health that we're not taking care of. We have a mental health crisis that often disguises itself as gun violence. We also do have a mental health epidemic across this country, Chuck, that really is reflective of a hunger for purpose yeah. and meaning. Even if mental health really was the only factor here, and of course it isn't, you'd think that these same politicians would be all for funding more mental health programs and resources. But that doesn't seem to be the case. For example, Medicaid is the largest payer of behavioral health services in the country. They support lots of mental health funding. And time and time again, Republicans in Congress have continued to slash Medicaid. And take a look at the 10 mostly red states that haven't adopted the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion, which basically means they're declining extra money from the federal government that would help cover mental health care for lower income families. So lots of the same people who are saying gun violence is a mental health issue are refusing to provide more coverage for mental health services. Meanwhile, those who solely blame mental health for mass shootings are also stigmatizing the very people who struggle with it, struggle with mental health. The fact is only 5% of mass shootings are related to severe mental illness, according to a study from Columbia University's Department of Psychiatry. And although 25% of mass shootings are associated with depression and other non-psychotic mental illnesses, in most cases, there are con those conditions are incidental. 
We've also seen some elected officials point to mental health to deflect from the dangerous ideologies that clearly motivate many mass shootings, like, say, the shooting at the Dollar General store in Jacksonville last weekend, where the gunman did have a history of mental health issues. But when a white man targets black people and kills three of them, racism is clearly at play. And all you heard from these officials was mental health. There wasn't talk of racism. Now, meanwhile, consider this. Mental health is an issue everywhere. A brand new study led by Harvard Medical School and the University of Queensland found that half of the world's population will experience a mental health disorder at some point in their lifetime. And yet the U.S. gun homicide rate is 26 times that of other high-income countries. Our mental health problem isn't unique. Our gun violence problem is unique. So what's the outlier? I'm sure most of you won't be shocked to hear it. It's the guns. The United States has more guns than people. U.S. civilians have an average of 120 and a half firearms per 100 people, more than one per person, which is the biggest in the world by a long shot. So the Republican argument that a mental health crisis is the only reason we have a horrific gun violence problem in this country just isn't accurate. It's also a big cop out. Mental health is a big issue here and everywhere. And there's no question we need to be better as a country in funding care for those who are struggling with loneliness, anger, and isolation. Many Republicans who are outraged about the mental health crisis have the power to vote for that funding. But there's a long list of complex societal issues that could lead someone to become angry or radicalized enough to want to commit a mass shooting in in any country. The only reason someone here in the United States can act on it so easily is that they can go out and buy a gun in a matter of days, if not minutes. And that is inherently an American problem. Senator Chris Murphy, a longtime advocate of common sense gun reform, joins me next. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill, and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Despite what the cynics and skeptics would have you believe, there are solutions to the epidemic of gun violence in America. Just this week, the Biden administration moved forward with the plan to regulate gun sales in the United States. The new proposal, which is a direct result of the bipartisan gun reform law passed by Congress last year, would eliminate the gun show loophole. Right now, a massive amount of private gun sales are happening without background checks. This new proposal would require all firearm dealers to get a federal license and to conduct criminal background checks, regardless of where the guns are sold. Joining me now is one of the country's most vocal proponents of gun safety reform, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Senator Murphy, great to see you Labor Day weekend. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. So we've been hearing versions of closing a gun show loophole for some time now. A a lot of us, but you've been talking about it for years. 
Do you think there's a greater appetite to do this now? And what are you hearing from Republican colleagues that's encouraging? Well, you know, of course, this is such an exceptional issue in American politics today. The public has made up their mind. They want universal background checks. It pulls at 85, 90, 95 percent approval in this country. You don't get that kind of approval rating for grandma or apple pie or baseball. It's like the most popular thing in the United States, making sure the criminals and people with serious mental illness don't have guns. And it's just been so frustrating and maddening to voters at the top of the list as to why Congress hasn't been able to get it done. But as you mentioned, in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act last year, we did make a pretty important change. Um, We made it clear that anybody that's in the business of selling guns, even if it's a part-time business, has to be licensed and has to perform background checks. And so the Biden administration announced uh, just this week that they are going to be implementing that section of the bill, and it is likely going to result in literally tens of thousands of guns that right now are sold without background checks having background checks applied. And that means there's going to be a lot fewer criminals, a lot fewer people with mental illness who are going to be able to find loopholes around the background check law to get their hands on a firearm. And that is predominantly people who are selling, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40 guns a year at a gun show or online that weren't doing background checks before who are now going to have to perform background checks. And by the way, five-minute background checks, background checks that don't stop any law-abiding gun owner from getting their hands on a weapon. One of the other big challenges, to state the obvious, as of late, is what the FBI director has been saying for years, that racially motivated violent extremism is the largest threat to our country. I know you've talked about this. Unfortunately, we've seen white supremacy as a primary motivator of a number of mass shootings uh, in the last few years, including recently in, in Jacksonville. But the violent rhetoric from not just Trump, but some of the other leading candidates continues to escalate. In addition to what you're trying to do in Congress, what can we actually do about this as a country? Well, I think there's two important things to say here. First is there is a direct through line between the glorification and endorsement of violence that is happening in right-wing political circles and the usage of violence uh, against black, brown, gay, lesbian, transgender Americans. Um, The folks who are out there glorifying violence that are part of Trump's movement, they are sending a signal of endorsement to people who think that they can deal with the demons by taking out violence on people that they hate. Um, But the second piece of this is related to your opening. You know, you talked about this scapegoating of the mentally ill. Um, It's really important to point out that you don't have to be mentally ill to be racist. Mm. Um, There are plenty of people who are not mentally ill, who are hateful and prejudiced towards minorities and vulnerable populations in this country. And so it is just not true to look at many of these hate crimes and just write that away as a consequence of mental illness. There is a difference between mental illness and racism and the folks that are distributing um, this racist hate material. They have to be held accountable for that. So back in Congress, I know the Senate is not back quite yet, but of course, uh, there's lots of thought about what's going to happen when you do return. Uh, Majority Leader Schumer said in his Dear Colleague letter that the focus will be on funding the government and preventing House Republican extremists from forcing a government shutdown. For people who are just tuning into that possibility, there are threats of an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Do you think that will be the holdup in getting government funded through the House? Or what, what are the issues that will be really debated here? 
Well, it would be an absolute tragedy uh, as this economy is recovering, as we are seeing record job growth, uh, as we are seeing wages rise uh, for the government to shut down because of right wing Republican demands. That is the last thing our economy needs right now. Uh, the truth of the matter is that we can keep the government up and operating. We can get a budget, but it's going to be without those 100 or 150 most radical Republicans in the House of Representatives. Uh, there is a coalition of Democrats and a handful of reasonable Republicans in the House, along with the Senate, that can pass a budget. And that really is just a question uh, as to whether Kevin McCarthy is willing to stand up to those right-wingers who are clamoring for impeachment, uh, or he is going to let them run the business, not just at the House of Representatives, but run the business of the United States of America. That's a question he'll have to answer in the next 30 days. Taking it to the presidential race, there's polling that shows Joe Biden and Donald Trump tied in a head-to-head -head race. It is very, very early, um, and Trump actually takes the lead when you include third-party candidates. We go through kind of ebbs and flows of talking about the threat of third-party candidates, and I just wanted to ask you, you're a savvy political guy, how concerned do you think people should be about a third-party spoiler? Is it something that you're concerned about? Well, you know, we certainly look back to prior presidential elections like 2000 and, you know, come to the conclusion that some of these third party candidates were dispositive. Um, I do think we're in a bit of a different time right now. I think the stakes are higher. I think it's less likely that voters are going to throw away their vote on a third party candidate when we actually get to the election day. Sometimes people are more willing to suggest they'll vote for a third party candidate in early polls, less willing when it actually comes down to decision time. Um, but I think Joe Biden's going to do incredibly well. I think he's going to probably run against Donald Trump. I think he's going to beat Donald Trump by a bigger margin than in the last election. Uh, and I think that's because he's going to have a pretty incredible record to run on. And there are going to be issues like abortion um, that are going to drive even more voters, especially young voters, out to the polls in 2024 than came out in 2020. And I think that our success in passing things like the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is proof to those young voters um, that when they turn out and vote for Democrats, um, we actually can get things done that matter to them on issues like guns, choice and climate. So I'm not worried about the 2024 election. I think you'll see a lot of these close polls. But when the choice uh, is made by voters, I think Joe Biden is going to do incredibly well. There are a few people I can do a tour of the world with, but you are one of them. So I want to ask you quickly before I let you go, you're on the Foreign Relations Committee. There's reporting that some weapons being sent to the front lines in Ukraine are ending up in Russian hands. How do you feel about the accounting you've been given about um, the status of that? Do you want more information? Do you feel satisfied with what you have? So I feel very good about the accounting. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, the front lines are dangerous, chaotic places in every single conflict. Uh, there have been weapons that end up changing hands, in part because territory changes hands. Um, but what I have seen thus far, the information that I have been given, tells me that the Ukrainians have been incredibly thoughtful and responsible in the usage of the weapons that we have given to them. I think what you're going to see is a lot of opponents uh, of the Ukraine war, of supporting Ukraine in this war, propagandists around Vladimir Putin who are going to try to come up with lots of excuses as to why we shouldn't give weapons to the Ukrainians. But one of those reasons is not their end usage. Uh, the Ukrainians have been incredibly responsible and we should continue to support them. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you for the tour of the world. Politics, gun violence, Ukraine. Can't do that with everybody. Really appreciate your time today. We're coming right back after a quick break. Stay with us.
That does it for me today. Thanks for joining us on this holiday weekend. We'll be back here next Sunday at noon Eastern. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com.